Okay, guys, I cheated. Usually I don't start reading or researching anything about this before I start, but I had a little moment and this guy is scandalous. Um, the person who writes this, his name is Michael Finkel. Michael Finkel is a journalist and author who has written for a number of popular magazines, including The Atlantic, New York Times, National Geographic, Sports Illustrated, and Rolling Stone. So he's got to be pretty good to be able to write for all of those. He was a rising star at the New York Times before he was fired. Yes, fired in 2002 for falsifying reports of an investigative article about modern day slavery in Africa. Just before the story of his firing became public, Finkel learned that a fugitive in Mexico had assumed his identity. Finkel then poured his energy into exploring the motivation and circumstances that led Christian Longo, a former Oregon resident, convicted of murdering his wife and children, <laughs> to assume his own identity, Michael Finkel, journalist. The result of this exhaustive investigation was published in his memoir, True Story, Murder, Memoir, and Mia Culpa, which means, I'm sorry, it was my fault, I really did it, in which Finkel not only writes about Longo, about about his own deceit and failures. So he's using this to talk about how he is a liar too and how he's failed. In his book, Finkel writes that his time corresponding with Longo taught him, quote, how a person's life could spiral completely out of control, how one could get lost in a haze of dishonesty, and how these things could have dire consequences, end quote. Lessons, he says, that affected him profoundly as he examined his own shortcomings. Malaria, Stopping a Global Killer, the 2007 National Geographic article you will study in this unit, was one of the first major cover stories that Finkel wrote after taking a five-year hiatus from journalism. It's a pretty honorable re-beginning to be published in such a respected journal. All right, here we go. Malaria, stopping a global killer. The rapidly spreading disease affects more people than ever before. But until recently, the outcry has been muted. And then you see a large space next there. So it means that that's, there's a difference between those sections that I have to figure out. It begins with a bite, a painless bite. The mosquito comes in the night, alights on an exposed patch of flesh, and assumes the hunched, head-lowered posture of a sprinter in the starting blocks. Then she plunges her stiletto mouthparts into the skin. The mosquito has long, filament-thin legs and dappled wings. She's of the genus Anopheles, the only insect capable of harboring the human malaria parasite. And she's definitely a she. Male mosquitoes have no interest in blood, while females depend on protein-rich hemoglobin to nourish their eggs. A mosquito's proboscis appears spike-solid, but it's actually a sheath of separate tools 
cutting blades, and a feeding tube powered by two tiny pumps. She drills through the epidermis, then through a thin layer of fat, then into the network of blood-filled microcapillaries. She starts to drink. To inhibit the blood from coagulating, the mosquito oils the bite area with a spray of saliva. This is when it happens. Carried in the mosquito's salivary glands and entering the body with a lubricating squirt are minute, worm-like creatures. These are the one-celled malaria parasites known as plasmodia. 50,000 of them could swim in a pool the size of the period at the end of this sentence. Typically, a couple of dozen slip into the bloodstream, but it takes just one. A single plasmodium is enough to kill a person. The parasites remain in the bloodstream for only a few minutes. They ride the flume of the circulatory system to the liver. There, they stop. Each plasmodium burrows into a different liver cell. Almost certainly, the person who has been bitten hardly stirs from sleep. And for the next week or two, there's no overt sign that something in the body has just gone horribly wrong. We live on a malarious planet. It may not seem that way from the vantage point of wealthy country, where malaria is sometimes thought of, if it is thought of at all, as a problem that has mostly been solved, like smallpox or polio. Okay, I want to stop here and I want to show you something that's interesting here. When you're reading, it is so critical for you to notice what's happening to you and whenever the writing changes modes or purposes with each section. And so remember at the beginning when we started and there was this entry point on lines one through three and then that space. When I began reading about the mosquito and that whole process of biting, that to me is the anecdote of infection. And so when we changed over to page five at the top, that anecdote has ended and the writer is moving us into how bad this problem is. And so I need to change the way I'm reading. I'm not reading it like a story or that little anecdote anymore. And so I'm going to see what it's saying about this problem of malaria. So he started off saying, eh, most people don't really think much about it. But look right here on line 45 at the end. In truth, that means he's using a comparison contrast or what people thought, but that's not true. So people think that this is a problem that's been solved, but in truth, now we're going to hear what's really correct about it. In truth, malaria now affects more people than ever before. It's endemic to 106 nations threatening half of the world's population. In recent years, the parasite has grown so entrenched and has developed resistance to so many drugs that the most potent strains can scarcely be controlled. This year, malaria will strike up to a half a billion people, 
at least a million will die, and most of them under the age of five, the vast majority living in Africa. That's more than twice the annual toll a generation ago. So he's using all these striking facts that surprise us and jolt us into an understanding that this is a really bad problem. So he continues, the outcry over this pandemic epidemic until recently has been muted. Okay, you remember hearing that before? Our first three lines. The rapidly spreading disease affects more people than ever before, but until recently, the outcry has been muted. It leads us to ask the question, why was it muted? And when did that change? Why has it changed? So that's what we begin to see in this next section. So we're moving away from that, that previous section to a new one. And we ask why. The outcry over this epidemic until recently has been muted. Malaria is a plague of the poor, easy to overlook. The most unfortunate fact about malaria, some researchers believe, is that prosperous nations got rid of it. In the meantime, several distinctly unprosperous regions have reached the brink of total malarial collapse, virtually ruled by swarms of buzzing, flying syringes. Again, just like the previous paragraph, people didn't think about it much, but it's a really big problem. Now we have one of the reasons why they're not thinking about it is the differences between the rich and the poor. So this writer keeps making these contrasts between ideas. Only in the past few years has malaria captured the full attention of aid agencies and donors. The World Health Organization has made malaria reduction a chief priority. Bill Gates, who has called malaria the worst thing on the planet, has donated millions of dollars to the effort through the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. The Bush administration has pledged $1.2 billion. Funds devoted to malaria have doubled since 2003. The idea is to disable the disease by combining virtually every known malaria-fighting technique from the ancient Chinese herbal medicines to the old bed nets and to the ultra-modern multi-drug cocktails. At the same time, malaria researchers are pursuing a long-sought elusive goal, a vaccine that would curb the disease for good. Much of the aid is going to a few hard-hit countries scattered across sub-Saharan Africa. If these nations can beat back the disease, they'll serve as templates for the global anti-malarial effort. And if they can't, well, nobody in the malaria world likes to answer that question. One of the spotlighted countries, perhaps the place most closely watched by malaria experts, is Zambia a sprawling, landlocked nation carved out of the fertile bushland of southern Africa. Okay, I feel like there's been a shift here. We were talking about all of the things that they're trying to do with aid to make these changes, and now he's zooming in so we can see what this is like in a particular place, Zambia. So now I'm, I kind of have like a new heading, a new um, thing that the writer is doing. 
It's difficult to comprehend how thoroughly Zambia has been devastated by malaria. In some provinces, at any given moment, more than a third of all children under age five are sick with the disease. Worse than the sheer numbers is the type of malaria found in Zambia. So we have the numbers, and now we're moving into the type that really explains how awful it is. Four species of malaria parasites routinely infect humans. The most virulent by far is Plasmodium falciparum. About half of all malaria cases worldwide are caused by falciparum and 95% of the deaths. That is a startling statistic indeed. It's the only form of malaria that can attack the brain, and it can do so with extreme speed. Few infectious agents can overwhelm the body as swiftly as falciparum. An African youth can be happily playing soccer in the morning and dead of falciparum malaria that night. So now we're ready for a new section. We have the contrast about how many people are affected, then the type of malaria that is found there with falciparum, and now we're going to move into where he has, he speaks a little bit more about falciparum itself and have a little bit more details about that particular strain. Falciparum is a major reason nearly 20% of all Zambian babies do not live to see their fifth birthday. Older children and adults, too, catch the disease. Pregnant women are especially prone, but most have developed just enough immunity to fight the parasites to a stalemate. Though untreated malaria can persist for years, the fevers fading in and out. There are times when it seems that everyone in Zambia is debilitated to some degree by malaria. Many have had it a dozen or more times. No surprise that the nation remains one of the poorest in the world. A country's economic health has little chance of improving until its physical health is revitalized. Zambia's goal is to reduce malaria deaths by 75% over in the next year. To witness a full force of the malaria stranglehold on Zambia, it's essential to leave the capital city of Lusaka. I feel a change has happened again now. So he gave us some descriptions about what was happening in Zambia. And now we're zooming even closer into a particular place in Zambia called Lusaka. Drive north across the verdant plains, past the banana plantations and the copper mines. Copper is Zambia's primary export. And into the forested region tucked between the borders of Angola and the Dominican Republic of the Congo. This is the northwestern province. It is almost entirely rural. Many villages can be reached only by thin footpaths worn into the beet red soil. A nationwide health survey in 2005 concluded that for every thousand children under the age of five living in the northwestern province, there were 1,353 cases of malaria. That's a weird number. For every thousand children, oh, yeah, for every thousand, there are 1,353 cases 
the malaria. So they get it a lot, I guess. The annual rate of more than 100% seems impossible. A typo. I guess I caught it. And that's one of the things that we do when we're reading. You notice that throughout this text, there are startling statistics. Those are designed to really pique your interest and to help you understand. He's carefully chosen these to emphasize how bad this problem is. It seems like impossible, a typo. It is not. What it means is that many children are infected with malaria more than once a year. In the northwestern province, competent medical help can be difficult to find. From families living in the remote northern part of the province, across more than a thousand square miles of wild terrain, there is only one place that can ensure a reasonable chance of survival when severe malaria strikes a child. Kayleen Mission Hospital. So we're zooming in even further to a particular hospital within this region. This modest healthcare center in a decaying brick building capped with a rusty tin roof represents the front line in the conflict between malaria and man. Scientists at the world's high-tech labs ponder the secrets of the parasite. Aid agencies solicit donations. Pharmaceutical companies organize drug trials. But it is Kayleen Hospital, which functions with precisely one microscope, two registers nurses, occasional electricity from a diesel generator, and sometimes a doctor, sometimes not, though always with a good stock of anti-malarial medicines that copes with malaria's victims. You should have noticed that contrast right there again between the rich and the poor. And that comparison and contrast signaled by words such as but. Every year for a century, since Christian Ministries founded the hospital in 1906, the coming of the rainy season has marked the start of a desperate pilgrimage. Clouds gather, downpours erupts, mosquitoes hatch, malaria surges. There's no time to lose. Parents bundle up their sick children and make their way to Kayleen Hospital. They come mostly on foot. Some walk for days. They follow trails across borders into rivers through bushwood, brushwood. When they reach the hospital, each child's name is printed on a card and filed in a worn wooden box at the nurse's station. Florence, Elijah, Ashili. They come through the heat and the rain and the dead dark of the cloudy night. Purity, Watson, Maneva. Some unconscious, some screaming, some locked in seizure. Nelson, Jaffius, Kukina. A few families ride bicycles. Chinese made, one speeds the father at the pedals, the mother on the seat, the child between. Delifia, Fideli, Sylvester. They fill up every bed in the children's ward, and they fill up the floor, and they fill up the courtyard. Methylene. Milton, Christine. They pour out of the bush, exhausted and dirty and panicked. They come to the hospital and the battle for survival begins. I know I probably don't have to point it out to you, but as we began, we had this 
mosquito that was plunging into someone's skin. And now we have this section on page nine where it's much more personal. These people have names. These people have parents that are desperately trying to save their children. Oh, and look what the writer has done. From the mosquito's salivary glands to the host's liver cell, a quiet trip. Everything seems fine. Even the liver itself, that reddish sack of blood-filtering cells, shows no sign of trouble. So now we're back into kind of that anecdote about what was happening inside of those children's bodies. It's only in those few rooms whose locks have been picked by falciparum where all is pandemonium. Inside these scales, cells, the malaria parasites eat and multiply. They do this nonstop for about a week until the cell's original contents have been entirely digested and it is bulging with parasites like a soup can gone bad. Each falciparum that entered the body has now replicated itself 40,000 times. The cells explode. So I'm just going to stop for a minute and put a new sticky note um, starting at 185. So we're back to the story of the invasion. <laughs> In other words, what's happening with that mosquito that we can't see. So I'm going to read until I get to a new section to find out what's next. The cells explode. A riot of parasites is set loose in the bloodstream. Within 30 seconds, though, the parasites have again entered the safe houses of cells. This time, each has drilled into a red blood cell flowing through the circulatory system. Over the next two days, the parasites continue to devour and proliferate stealthily. After they have consumed the invaded cells, they burst out again, and once more there is bedlam in the blood. You know, when I very started reading this, I really didn't want to because I thought it was going to be boring. But this guy is good. He's even using some of the literary techniques like alliteration, bedlam in the blood, burst. Um, for the first time, the body realizes it has been ambushed. Headache and muscle pains are a sign that the immune system has been triggered. But if this is the victim's first bout of malaria, the immune response is mostly ineffective. The alarm has sounded, but the thieves are already under the bed. The parasites swiftly invade a new set of blood cells, and the sequence of reproduction and release continues. Now... The internal temperature begins to rise as the body attempts to cook away the invaders. Shivering sets in. Muscle vibrations generate warmth. This is a followed by severe fever, then drenching sweat. Cold, hot, wet. The symptoms are all a hallmark of the disease. But the parasite's exponential growth continues. And after a few more cycles, there are billions of them tumbling about in the blood. By this time, the fever has reached a maximum intensity. The body is practically boiling itself to death, anything to halt the attack. But to no avail, 
The parasites can even commandeer blood cells to help aid their survival. In some cases of falciparum, infected cells sprout Velcro-like knobs on their surfaces. And as these cells pass through the capillaries of the brain, they latch to the sides. The adhesion keeps them from washing into the spleen, which cleans the blood by shredding damaged cells. So somehow, no one is quite sure how, the adhesion also causes the brain to swell. The infection has turned to cerebral malaria, the most feared manifestation of the disease. That is when the body starts to break down. The parasites have destroyed so many oxygen-carrying red cells that too few are left to sustain vital functions. The lungs fight for breath, and the heart struggles to pump. The blood acidifies. Brain cells die. The child struggles and convulses and finally falls into a coma. Malaria is a confounding disease. Often it seems contradictory to logic. So what we see here is it's changed once again. The anecdote has ended and we're back into the expository nature of what it's trying to explain here. Curing almost all malaria cases can be worse than curing none. That's curious. Destroying fragile wetlands in the world of malaria is a noble act. Okay, I see what they're saying now. We would not really normally condone killing wetlands. So this is talking about other areas of struggle related to curing the disease. Rachel Carson, the environmental icon, is a villain. Her three-letter devil DDT is a savior. Carrying a gene for an excruciating and often fatal blood disorder Sickle cell anemia is a blessing, for it confers partial resistance to falciparum. Leading researchers at 100 medical centers are working on anti-malarial medicines, but a medicinal plant described 1,700 years ago may be the best remedy available. In its ability to adapt and survive, says Robert Godz, who has studied malaria at the National Institutes of Health near Washington, D.C. for almost 35 years, the malaria parasite is a genius. It's smarter than we are. The disease has been with humans since before we were human. So now we're going into, sounds like, a history. So I'm going to make a little note right there. The disease has been with humans since before we were human. Our homonym ancestors almost certainly suffered from malaria. The parasite and the mosquito are both ancient creatures. The dinosaurs might have had malaria. And this longevity has allowed the disease ample time to exploit the vulnerabilities of an immune system. And not just ours. Mice, birds, porcupines, lemurs, mer monkeys, and apes catch their own forms of malaria bats and snakes and flying squirrels have malaria. Few civilizations in all of history have escaped the disease. Some Egyptian mummies have signs of malaria. Hippocrat 
Hippocrates documented the distinct stages of the illness. Alexander the Great likely died of it, leading to the unraveling of the Greek Empire. Malaria may have stopped the armies of both Attila the Hun and Genghis Khan. The disease's name comes from the Italian, malaria, meaning bad air. In Rome, where malaria raged for centuries, it was commonly believed that swamp fumes produced the illness. At least four peoples died of it. It may have killed Dante. Oh, popes. Four popes died. Um, it may have killed Dante, the Italian poet. George Washington suffered from malaria, as did Abraham Lincoln and Ulysses Grant. In the late 1800s, malaria was so bad in Washington, D.C. that one prominent physician lobbied unsuccessfully to erect a gigantic wire screen around the city. A million Union Army casualties in the Civil War are attributed to malaria, and the Pacific Theater of World War II casualties from the disease exceeded those from combat. Some scientists believe that one out of every two people who have ever lived have died of malaria. Again, I just can't emphasize how much the, the startling statistics are. And one of the things we do is we pay attention to those to see how it's helping promote the thesis. But we also can't help to be surprised by these things. It's important to allow yourself to be surprised by these things. Now, this next section, it starts with the first widely known remedy. Um, that feels like it's still talking about history, but this feels important to me. So I'm going to go ahead and put a new tab here, remedy, because I think that might be important. The first widely known remedy was discovered in present-day Peru and Ecuador. It was the bark of the sin. Chona tree, a close cousin of coffee. <laughs> Local people called it, called the remedy, Quina Quina, bark of barks. And it was later distributed worldwide as quinine. Oh, I've heard of that. The world of medicine spread by the Jesuit missionaries reached a malaria ravaged Italy in 1632 and demand became overwhelming. Harvested by indigenous laborers and carried to the Pacific's coast for shipment to Europe, the bark sold for a fortune. Several expeditions were dispatched to bring seeds and saplings back to Europe. After arriving in South America, the quinine hunters endured a brutal trek through the snow-choked passes of the Andes and down into the cloud forests where the elusive tree grew. Many perished in the effort, and even if the quinine hunters didn't die, the plants almost always did. For 200 years, until the Chinchona tree was finally established on plantations in India, Sri Lanka, and Java, the only way to acquire the cure was directly from South America. Quinine, which disrupts the malaria's parasite reproduction, has saved countless lives, but it has drawbacks. It's short-acting, and if taken too frequently, can cause serious side effects, including hearing loss. In the 1940s, however, came the first two extraordinary breakthroughs. A synthetic malaria medicine was introduced. 
The compound was named chloroquinine, and it was inexpensive, safe, and afforded complete, long-lasting protection against all the forms of malaria. In other words, it was a miracle. I think it's interesting that I never would have had the reaction to chloroquinine had it not been for COVID. So we've got quinine and chloroquine. Now we have another one. The second innovation was equally miraculous. Swiss chemist Paul Mueller discovered the insecticidal power of a compound called dichlorodiphenyltrichlorethane, better known as DDT. Mueller was awarded the 1948 Nobel Prize in Medicine for her discovery for nothing in the history of insect control had ever worked like DDT. Microscopic amounts could kill mosquitoes for months, long enough to disrupt the cycle of malaria transmission. It lasted twice as long as the next best insecticide and cost a fourth as much. Armed with the twin weapons of chloroquinine and DDT, The World Health Organization in 1955 launched the Global Malaria Eradication Program. The goal was to eliminate the disease within 10 years. Don't think they succeeded. More than a billion dollars was spent. Tens of thousands of tons of DDT were applied each year to control mosquitoes. India, where malaria had long been a plague, hired 150,000 workers full-time to spray homes. Chloroquinine was widely distributed. It was probably the most elaborate international health initiative ever undertaken. The campaign was inspired by early successes in Brazil and the United States. The U.S. had recorded millions of malaria cases during the 1930s, mostly in southern states, Then an intensive anti-malaria program was launched. More than 3 million acres, 1.2 million hectares of wetlands were drained. DDT was sprayed in hundreds and thousands of homes. And in 1946, the Centers for Disease Control was founded in Atlanta specifically to combat malaria. America's affluence was a major asset. Almost everyone could get a doctor. Windows could be screened. Resources were available to bulldoze mosquito-breeding swamps. There's also the lucky fact that the country's two most common species of Anopheles mosquitoes prefer feeding on cattle rather than humans. By 1950, transmission of malaria was halted in the United States. The global eradication effort did achieve some notable successes. Malaria was virtually wiped out in much of the Caribbean and South Pacific from the Balkans, from Taiwan. Taiwan, In Sri Lanka, there were 2.8 million cases of malaria in 1946 and a total of 17 in 1963. In India, malaria deaths plummeted from 800,000 a year to scarcely any. But it was also clear that the campaign was far too ambitious. And we'll end there and begin reading the next parts of the essay or the article in our next podcast.
about malaria, stopping a global killer, 